The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. You want to take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Peter once again. We'll be in Peter's first letter this evening. Third run through this letter, we'll be looking at verses 6 to 9. As I was preparing for this lesson, one thought that came to my mind as I was just reading the text was, the question, what is your most valuable possession? What is your most valuable possession? It's kind of one of those things that seems really easy for a kid to answer, right? Like they they have something on their mind that just is their favorite toy or favorite thing at the time, and so they're able to rhyme off what is most valuable to them. There are times that I'll pull Miles aside or something, and I'll I'll say, hey, Miles, you are... You're special to me. I, I love you, and, and you mean a lot to me, and I'm so glad you're my son. And then I'll say something like, Miles, what is, what is special to you? And he'll say, my Lego guy, <laughs> or something like that. That's probably me trying to stroke my own ego. But, um, <laughs> but kids, they, they know what they love, and they know what they're passionate about. And I think as, as adults, when we start and think of what's valuable to us, what means a lot to us, sometimes it's a, a little bit more difficult. I, so I decided that I'd do like a random Google search because, you know, that's the best way to get good information is just go to Google. And so I, I, I asked Google's question, what is the most valuable possession to people? And I got answers like their identity. You know, your identity is something that only you have that's, that nobody else really has, and so it's precious. Some people said it's their health. That's a tough thing to have is your most valuable possession because it's something you're someday going to lose and probably many times throughout your life. Some people said the truth is their most valuable possession. And that's a, it's a good answer, truth. Some people said it's their mind. And maybe those people thought they were really smart. I don't, I don't know. But again, it's one of those things that you, you have your mind as your most valuable possession. You're setting yourself up to lose something. Some people said it's their life. Others were not as serious, and they said something about their, their special car. And I think a lot of us as Christians, we'd probably say at least something like, well, it's, it's my spouse, or it's my family, or it's, it's my friendships, or it's something about some kind of relationship they have. Some of us would be very spiritual, and we'd say it's our salvation. Right? It's, it's, it's our relationship with the Lord that's most valuable to us, and that's a wonderful answer. Well, I think the, the sermon tonight, and Peter's message for us tonight in verses 6 to 9 is going to try and set our priorities straight on what is precious to us. And the answer that Peter gives isn't the first answer that comes to a lot of our minds. And he says that our most valuable possession, what we have that is the most valuable thing that we possess, is our faith. It's our faith. So valuable that it's worth losing all of those other things if it means strengthening and refining and growing our faith. So it's all those other things that the world would cling to and say, this is so precious and important in my life. Peter says, for the Christian, we set all that aside and we say we know that is not valuable at all compared to your faith. In fact, your faith is so valuable that it's worth losing all of those things if it means refining that faith just a little bit, making it a little bit stronger, a little bit more pure. And so that is Peter's desire for us. And it's his desire for the believers he was writing to. 
These are believers scattered throughout Asia, and they're about to go through this suffering and persecution and difficulty. And he says, listen, in your life, that is what's going to happen. You should expect it. But you have something more valuable than anything anybody can take from you, and that is your faith. And so let's look at 1 Peter again this evening, and we'll start reading at verse number 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of blood of Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you, and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Peter gets right into it. I mean, we have two Verses of introduction, he says who, he's, who he is and who he's speaking to. He's speaking to those people who are strangers on the earth, but citizens of heaven and children of God. And he says, you ought to live your life to bless God because he's given you these three wonderful things. God, through the resurrection of Christ, has given you a living hope. He's given you an inheritance that is incorruptible. It will never fade. It will never defile. Nothing can ever touch this inheritance. Nothing will ever diminish it. It will always be as perfect as it is now. And it's there in heaven ready for you. And it will be revealed to you on the last day, that day of your salvation. What an incredible thing that believers have. And so he begins laying that foundation because what he's going to speak about for the rest of the letter, is what real life looks like. He doesn't sugarcoat anything. He doesn't make anything seem like it's going to be better than it actually will be. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be tough. We're going to get right into it, this letter, this passage. And so Peter begins by setting our priorities straight and by by reminding us of our eternal inheritance. So verse number six, he says, Wherein you greatly rejoice. And certainly as Christians, we'd say, Amen, Peter. We rejoice in our future inheritance. We rejoice in our future salvation. But can I remind you that some of what he's saying is the thing that you're rejoicing in is your current state in the knowledge that that's to come. So it's not just rejoicing in what's to come. It's rejoicing in where you're at, at this moment, wherever it is, in the knowledge that that's to come. We greatly rejoice Though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Now this, this is a, a great verse, and this is a very honest verse. He says, if now for a season. Now first of all, the idea of a season is, is a short time. It's a brief time. And so yes, we are rejoicing now. Yes, we should rejoice now. But there will be brief times. The thing is, those of you who are in a trial or going through a trial or have been through trials... When you're in the middle of a trial, does it seem brief? No, it doesn't. It doesn't seem like a season. Sometimes it seems like an eternity. It seems very difficult. It seems like it's never going to end, and you can't see the light at the end, right? But Peter reminds us here that it is just a brief time. It's a brief season. 
He says there will be scenes, seasons of difficulty. And he says, if need be, and when I first read that, I thought, okay, Peter's saying that, that, yeah, okay, some of you, if necessary, will go through these trials. And it's almost like he's saying, if your faith is lacking in some area compared to, you know, the person sitting beside you, God's probably going to throw you through a trial when that person is going to go through life, you know, trialless, with no problems at all. But that's not what it means. This isn't, this isn't a, a conditional statement. It's not like there's any person that is, any Christian that has ever lived that doesn't need to go through trials. So the idea of if need be is since it is necessary, since we need to, we are going to go through trials. There will be little brief times in every believer's life, if they have true faith, it is necessary for them to go through trials, to go through heaviness. And Peter's being honest. It is sorrow. It is painful. It is grievous. It is difficult. We're not talking about just little inconveniences. It's not just little inconveniences, right? These are, these are difficulties. Things that rock your world. That's what they're about to go through. And he says, we're going to enter into manifold temptations or manifold trials. And the idea of manifold is awesome. It's multicolored. And so these trials of different shapes and different sizes and different colors are going to enter into each of our lives because it's necessary. And let's find out why. Verse number seven, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found in the praise and honor and glory glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Do you know what's going to happen with those trials of your faith? It's going to refine your faith, just like when you take gold and you refine it, right? What do you do when you refine gold? You heat it up and you burn off all the, the junk inside of it. And so all, what you're left with is pure gold. Now for Peter, when he's speaking about this pure gold, he's speaking about the most precious substance he can think of, the most precious substance for them that was, that was really imaginable. What's, what's the most costs the most money out of everything. It's gold. Okay, so, so he takes what's most precious and he says that there is something that is more precious and less perishable than gold. And so it's going to be refined the same way with going through this trial, with going through this fire. But at the end, gold doesn't wind up serving to bring praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Christ. You know what gold does? It does nothing. It fades away. I found it interesting that actually when he's using gold here, he's using the most unreactive element. And so basically everything else we can say, all other metals, you know, they're going to rust and decay somehow. But gold, it seems to tarnish. It's very difficult for it to tarnish. You need some sulfur or something to, to tarnish gold. But what's interesting is, what they do in rings, in wedding rings, like mine, is that they, they don't give you 24-karat gold. Do you know why they don't? Maybe because it's more expensive and they want to sell more rings. But part of the reason is because it's too soft. Because though g- gold might not rust, it's not going to react with oxygen, what it is going to do, pure gold, what it is going to do, is it's going to slowly rub away. It's going to slowly diminish. 
And so what's it's really neat, if you can find a grandparent that has a ring, their wedding ring, that's, that they've been wearing for 50 years, if it is pure gold, you'll see that it's really worn down in certain spots. And so, yes, gold might not rust, but it does fade away. It does perish. It just, it rubs off. It doesn't last. And, and what Peter's saying, he's, t- he's taking the thing that we would think of as most imperishing. It, it's the metal that is likely going to last the longest. And it's the metal that costs the most. And yet our faith and the trial of our faith is more precious than gold and will outlast gold, the benefits. It's kind of a, a really neat comparison that he uses here. At the appearing of Christ, and at the appearing of Christ, the trial of your faith that seems so impossible right now, that, that, that you shed tears over, that you don't know what to do, that you feel like you're darkness, that trial can bring forth praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Christ. And you know what's great? Or maybe not great, but you know what's true? Nothing else can do what trials do in our lives. Nothing else. And so this is God's way of refining our faith. It says in verse 8, Whom having not seen, you love in whom, though now you see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Peter gives us this assumption, this baseline of how a Christian should view Christ and how their view of Christ should affect them. And what he says is, our view of Christ should, first of all, we love. We have our love toward him. The word is agapeo, love. It's, It's the love that is Willing to sacrifice. It's not this emotional kind of, you have this experience where you go to church and you feel so, you know, in love, like you have this tingly feeling. No, this is like the real kind of love that has actions with it, that chooses to do. And he says you love him, even though you don't see him. You believe in him. This is the kind of response that a believer ought to have for Christ, this is the response that he expects. And so what I'm trying to say here is that when we look at 1 Peter and we look at what he's writing, he is giving us how we should be viewing Christ right now. Because if we can't get to the place where we see what Christ did for us and we love him and we believe in him because of it, then we'll never get to the place where we can say, and I can go through a trial and still rejoice. Now, I mean, that, that idea, it sounds insane. It sounds insane to ever say that I went through this trial and through it I rejoiced because I knew God was working on me. But here's the thing. I have seen a few believers in my lifetime that have done that. I have seen a few believers in my lifetime that have gone through trials and rejoiced and glorified God. And can I tell you something? It was beautiful to watch. It is an incredible thing to watch a child of God trust their father through the hardest times. It's rare. It's far too rare. It should happen more often because we have a God that is that good. But but when it happens, it's beautiful. And so what I'm saying is, Peter knows it's possible. Peter knows that we can get there. And we'll never get there unless our first response and our normal response to Christ is love that's willing to act and belief. And all of that produces in us this rejoicing with joy unspeakable 
and full of glory. Indescribable joy. The idea of, is super abundant joy. You, you imagine that kind of joy? There's nothing else that offers that kind of joy. But going through these trials and, and trusting Christ and knowing that, that at the appearing of Christ, all of this, all of the trials and the difficulties are going to result in his honor and praise and glory because we love him and we believe in him. All of that is this, this beautiful picture of what the Christian life can be. Peter's calling us to a higher standard. And, and I mean, I don't, we, we're raised with kind of a North American Christianity. And, and I say that, and even when I say it, I think, you know what? Every single generation has their struggles. Every single generation has their difficulties. But our, our version of Christianity in our world is that it's, there's a lot of cultural things that go along with it. So it's, it's very culturally acceptable. And because of that, we're not raised to expect to lose all along the way because of it. Right? We're not raised to expect. I mean, for example, when, when you give money to the church, at the end of the year, you tell the government you gave money to a church, and what happens? They send you money back for your taxes, right? I mean, they, they reduce your taxes by 19 to 27%, depending on how much you gave. Okay? That's crazy. I mean, we take it for granted. We almost expect it. And, and if it didn't happen, if the government took it away, I'd be upset about it, kind of. But you think about that. Imagine these people going to the Roman government and saying, hey, listen, I gave my money to the church, so we're... Right? Because they don't live in the kind of world that we live in, this, this North America that we get to live in where, where Christianity is, is accepted. And it's in some ways still celebrated. There are some positive views that, that part of our culture. Now listen, I know that the tide is shifting. And part of the reason that this message in, in the book of First Peter is so important for us is because that whole sentiment is shifting in the world. People are starting to turn their eyes against Christianity as though it's an evil thing again. But that has been fairly normal. It's the kind of normative Christendom is that the world hates us. And so if we go back there, it really is okay. Because what we're trying to do is we're trying to please Christ. And our hope isn't in the tax money that we're getting back or in people being kind to us. Our hope is in the day that we get to meet Christ. And, and so we, we, we are given reasons that Christianity benefits us in this life. And so we tend to forget or not think as much about the reasons that it is eternal, eternally beneficial. And that's what's actually important. Right? The, like our eyes need to be on eternity and on him. And so he says in verse 9, Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. John Corson, a man named John Corson said, if you had to choose between a smooth flight with a crash landing or a bumpy flight with a safe landing, what would you choose? That's a pretty easy question, right? He says, someday you will receive the end of your faith. Yes, it's because of that faith and, and the testing of that faith that you went through multicolored trials because God was using those trials to refine you and correct you. But would you rather go through a life that has some bumps and bruises, that, that has some testings with a safe landing, with eternity and eternal glory? Or would you rather go through a, a, a smooth flight with a crash landing? 
Now, the, the, the funny thing about all this is there really isn't a smooth flight. I mean, they don't exist. Um, but it's something for us to think about. Someday we receive the end of our faith, the salvation of our souls. And if we were to able to step out of time for a minute, I guarantee that every single trial that you're going through, that you've gone through, and that you will go through, will completely make sense. And I even think if you could step at a time and see the end of that trial, and see what God did in that trial, you might say, okay, God, I'm willing to walk through that. Here's the problem, we don't get to do it. We don't get to step out of time and and see the end from the beginning. What we're told to do is to trust that there's a God who knows the end from the beginning, who's our Heavenly Father, and who is putting us through that for our good and His glory. So that's where we need to get. That's why your faith is so important, because none of this makes sense without faith. And so, I want to give you tonight two reasons to rejoice in suffering. Number one, suffering is necessary for vitalized faith. Suffering is necessary for your faith to be alive, for it to be growing, for it to be meaningful. God is keeping our faith. He promises us that in verse 5. And so God is keeping our faith, and we find out in verse 7, God is sending our faith through various trials, multicolored trials. Why? Because he is keeping our faith, and that is how he purifies it, and that's how he tests it. All of it is in God's hand. Often we don't understand. Can you imagine a scenario where you get in your car to go to a Bible study, and on your way into the Bible study, you get in a car wreck? And so you wind up in the hospital, and as you wake up in the hospital, you find out that that Bible study was canceled, and that you just didn't get the phone message in time? You'd look at that whole scenario and you'd think, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, why would God, I mean, why would he orchestrate it so that I didn't get the phone message and so that I got in this accident? Why would all of this be happening? And so what we miss in that is that maybe God's purpose was the trial. Maybe God wasn't so concerned with having you avoid the trial because he actually wanted you to go through it because it was good for you. Um, some of you know that this week we sold our house and, uh, Tara and I will be, uh, with our kids and my grandma moving into a house just close here in Chatham. So we get to stay here forever. Um, pastor says it all the time. I, I'm going to start saying it, I guess. But we're, we have no, no plans to leave. We love this church. We love Chatham. And, um, but we, we sold our house, but it's, it's kind of interesting that I was thinking about all these thoughts this week and, I'm going to give you a little bit of information about kind of what happened this week because it's a very small, insignificant microcosm of a a time where we get to look and say, God, what are you doing? This doesn't make sense. Okay, So we sold our house, but um, what happened right away is that the person that that decided to buy it decided after they agreed to buy it that because of a couple things that were found on inspection that were actually visible already, um, that they wanted uh, some money off of the price. Well, we, we had already been thinking that there was this other couple that would be just wonderful if they could get the house, and they really wanted the house. And so it seemed like, I mean, they had told us they were praying about it. We had our small group praying about it. And, and somehow it seemed like God just orchestrated things so that um, we got out of the first deal so that this other couple could have the house. And we were just, yeah, God, God answered our prayers, and God answered their prayers, and this, is, this whole thing is working out great. And then we found out 
eight days later, that their financing fell through. And listen, I know this is not a, this is not a real trial. Okay? This, is, this is nothing, like we're not suffering or hurting or anything like that. So, but it was an instance where we stepped back and we thought, God, this, this doesn't seem to make sense. I mean, it seemed like it was so clear what you were doing, and I could follow you, and then all of a sudden, it doesn't make sense. And so what ended up happening is, we went back to the first person for less money. It's like, God, what's going on? And so uh, I had like a, a one, one night pity party, um, <laughs> maybe one morning too. And, <laughs> and, but the more I thought about it, the more I was thinking, does God care about, I mean, who is in which house? Probably insignificant in the scheme of things. And does God care about a few thousand dollars in my bank account? No, probably not. He's probably a lot less concerned about that than I am. He owns everything, right? And so, going through that, I thought, okay, if that's the case, he must be teaching me something. And I, th- I mean, I, I got from that, okay, he's teaching me, why am, I, why am I trying to figure stuff out so much so that I'm taking care of our finances? You know, I mean, I, certainly I, I think you should be wise in your decision-making with your finances. So I, I think you should follow biblical principles. I'm not against that. But I think I'm pretty smart when it comes to finances. And why do I think that, you know, I should just be able to figure all this stuff? Maybe I should just do a better job of trusting God in those things. Right? And it, and it again reminded me that, Dan, God isn't answering these maybe superficial prayers so much about houses as he's trying to transform my character. Maybe that's a lot more important. And so there were some great lessons that I needed to learn in this, in this whole thing. But it was just that moment of, it doesn't make sense. I don't understand. But, but suffering, or even a difficulty where you don't see what God is doing, is necessary for vitalized faith. It's necessary for my faith to, to be alive and to be real and to be going through difficult things and saying, do I still trust in a good, good and loving God? And much of our suffering will seem unnecessary, but someday when the curtain's pulled back, we will see a God who is keeping, he is refining, he is purifying his children because he loves them. and He wants the best for them. God is good, and he is willing to put us through difficulty because of what will occur in the end. If you want to grow your muscles, what do you have to do? You have to rip them apart. You have to work out, and it hurts. The next day, they, they're, they're sore. Why? Because you just tore them apart. Strengthen your faith. It, sometimes it has to be pulled apart. Sometimes it has to hurt a little bit. Sometimes there's pain and there's suffering involved. But God is good, and so he lets us go through that. He puts us through that. And God is good, so he gives us grace to go through those trials. He is good, and he puts us through trials, and he's good, and he gives us grace to go through those trials. Can you look at um, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10? I know I'm jumping ahead in the book a little bit, but this was just something that kind of jumped off the page when I read it. Um, It says, as every man that has received the gift, even so minister the same to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So he's speaking about the things that were given and the ways that we can serve, and he attributes all of that to the manifold 
grace of God. Do you know what that is? The multicolored grace of God. So he's teaching these people how they need to get through trials and how they need to get through suffering. And then he talks about the church and the gifts given and, 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 and our, our, the community. And he says that we're given gifts according to the multicolored grace of God. And so we go through these multicolored trials and we have multicolored grace. He gives us what we need. Every single trial requires a different kind of grace. And we have a God that can provide every single kind as we go through them. He is good, so he gives us grace to get through. Now, I love what Pastor said this morning. He talked about how we don't get to choose who God is or what he's like. We don't get to give God some kind of makeover. We can't change his character. He is God. What else is true about that? We can't change what he chooses to do. We can't change what he chooses to send in our life. The trial. What we can do is we can choose how we respond to that. Whether we see that as his gift and rejoice in it, even though it's difficult. Or whether we choose to throw ourselves a pity party. God is teaching us and he is good. And what's wonderful is he is a good God who puts us through difficulty so that he can give us grace, so that he can strengthen our faith. So number one, suffering is essential. It's necessary for a vitalized faith. Number two, suffering is temporary, but the glory is eternal. Suffering is temporary, and and I feel like I'm being redundant, being repetitive, because this is going to be just about every single week as I looked forward into the book of 1 Peter. This idea, this thought is here, that all of the suffering that we go through now is temporary, and someday there is eternal glory. Revelation chapter 21, verse 2 to 4. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither there shall be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. That is the glory that we have to look forward to. The new heaven, the new earth, the presence of God with us, and God himself coming and wiping away all the tears and taking away all the pain. I wonder if Peter had that thought in mind as he told us that we are going to have rejoicing, super abundant joy through the trying of our faith. Or maybe it was from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 and 18, what, what Paul wrote, when he says, For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perishes, the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. This thought, this thought of you're going to go through suffering, but it's a, it's a light affliction for a short time that will bring about this eternal glory is found all 
over the Bible. I mean, you can't, James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, you can't go anywhere and not see this idea that you're going to go through trouble, that God is going to test you and he's going to try your faith, and that someday it's going to work out for the salvation of your soul, for this, this eternal glory. It is it's going to be so worth it, so wonderful. And it's rem- banging it into us over and over and over again in the New Testament, I think because we need it. I think because we're so apt to focus ourselves on the, the small troubles that are in our way right now that they consume our minds and consume our thoughts. If you're a believer, please, don't let that consume you. You don't have to let it consume you. You have eternity. I'm not saying those things aren't difficult, but I'm saying there's something so much bigger and so much more eternal, and what I'm saying is, those things are temporary. Suffering is temporary. The glory is eternal. Someday the testing will cease. Someday the king will appear. And the day that the king appears, I guarantee you will be grateful for the testing of your faith. I was listening to a message by Alistair Begg recently, and he said that Christians need to have a lights-out faith. A lights-out faith. The idea of that is when the lights are out, when we don't see any answer or any hope or any reason, what does our faith look like? Right, we, say, we say things like, I believe in God the Father, the creator of the, of the heaven and the earth. And that's great to say. And it's easy to say when you're in the middle of a situation where you can say, God the Father is taking care of me and I can see his creation and everything just seems to be wonderful right now. So when you go through the time when your faith, when, when, there's, when the lights are out, more difficult to say things like that. And so we need to get to the place where we have this lights out faith, where we're ready to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, fearing no evil because we know that God is with us. And so, how is your faith? Is it a lights out faith? Is it a faith that trusts God no matter what you're going through? Trials are opportunities and they're not obstacles. They're opportunities for us to grow. They're not obstacles that just God throws in our way because he just wants to see how we're going to react. God is not capricious. He's not, he's not an unkind God who's hurting his children. No, everything has a purpose. They're opportunities to grow. Trials are painful. They're not imaginary. I, this isn't just something that's in our head. It's real and it's difficulty. Trials are purposeful and they're not random. That is, that is helpful. Go through something and you can, you can say, God is doing this for a reason. Trials are temporary and they're not forever. You remember these things about trials? Maybe, just maybe, we'll be a little bit prepared when God puts us through the testing of our faith. Because it's necessary and it's going to happen. And when it does, we can thank him for it. Let's pray.